John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, the Cinephile fans. This is John Roca. And this is Steve Morrison. We're here with a special preview. Yes, you've heard us talk about our month of directors. And this year we talked about our month of Spike Lee. And, you know, it got delayed because of other things that had gone on with our schedule. And now we are back on course. And this week we are dropping our conversation on Spike Lee, the Cinephile's conversation on Spike Lee with special guests, Steve. That's right. We did something completely different. We've reached out into some of our favorite people who have strong opinions about Spike Lee, and we're going to you're going to be hearing their voices along with the dulcet tones of Steve Morris and John Roca. <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to go through uh, Spike Lee's entire career, his filmography, his stuff inside and outside the world of entertainment, and give you a full view of our opinion on Spike Lee to kind of kick off our Spike Lee celebration, and our Spike Lee homage that we're doing here on The Cinephiles. And, you know, we've called it our month of, but the reality is these are spreading into way, I don't know if you call it a, a double month. I don't know how long we're going to go because after we have this conversation generally about the life and films of Mr. Lee, we are going to move on into two of his absolutely greatest films ever made, Force Do the Right Thing, and then Malcolm X. Yeah, I can't wait till we talk about both of those seminal, um, iconic films. And Steve, maybe we should call it the season of Spike Lee instead of the month of Spike Lee. What the, is the season of Lee? <laughs> season of Lee. I love I it. I love it. I love it. That's great. I So we are entering into the season of Lee. Do we know how long this is going to go? No, we don't. Because here on The Cinephiles, we are going to keep going until we feel that we've done these great films justice. Until the change of seasons, for sure. So thank you all so much ahead of time for listening to our conversation with Spike Lee that is happening this 
Friday on the Cinephiles from Steve Morris and John Roca. And what else do we have to tell them, Steve? If you haven't seen Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, or any of the incredible films by this incredible filmmaker, the, your journey should take you to cinephiles.net. We're going to put up a special page devoted to Spike Lee where you can buy or stream. I don't know if it'll be all of his films, but certainly his greatest films. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now you could be listening to John and I discuss what I believe is an absolutely terrible decision by the Oscars to dump eight categories off the live show. John, I think we both had a lot to say about this one. That we did. That we did. And, you know, because we love film so much, I think you guys are going to enjoy that conversation as well. So that's on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. So that's this Friday. Spike Lee conversation with the cinephiles. We'll see you then. This is the mayor talking. All right, all right. Doctor. Come on, what? What? Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. Hello and welcome once again to the cinephiles, where this week and for the next several weeks, we are entering the world of a great filmmaker. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, host, voiceover artist here in San Diego, California. And um, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite filmmakers, bar none. And I'm excited, Steve, that we've taken on this challenge and maybe the most challenging challenged we've ever taken on uh, with any of the filmmakers that we've profiled over the last few years. I, I, I think it definitely is. I mean, they've each one has been their challenge, mm -hmm. a challenge in their own way. I mean, certainly the world of Francis Ford Coppola was deep and complex, but I think this one. And you barely survived. <laughs> and I barely survived. And, but I, you know, it's like with everything, we got to want to take it seriously. And, and we're also doing yeah. something a little bit different. The filmmaker we're exploring is someone whose films we've never discussed on the show. Yeah, you've already said he's really important to you. He's extremely important to me. Hmm. And that filmmaker is Spike Lee. Yeah. And I think that part of our trepidation is obviously there are a lot of issues around this. And I'm a, you know, white Jewish guy. You're a Latino guy. And we yeah. went, well, how, what's the best way to approach it? And so we're actually going to do something a little different. It's a bit of an experiment. So at this point, I don't know how it's going to work out. But our idea is we're actually interviewing a whole bunch of different people filmmakers, actors, people that have their own relationship to Spike Lee, and you're going to be hearing their comments throughout this show and throughout the next several episodes edited in. Is that going to work? I don't know. We've never done this before. Yeah, but that's what's great about, honestly, that's what's great about our show, if I can toot our horn for a little bit, is that we are constantly um, exploring ways to present the content that we do here in new and interesting ways. And we're not afraid to fail. We're not afraid to take the big chances. We're not afraid to try something new. And certainly um, when Steve reached out, was like, hey, I have this idea and it's about let's see if we can interlace people's comments. And the reason is because neither one of us are black, as Steve pointed out. So there's a different um, inherent, instinctive, intrinsic uh, experience that uh, black men and women have when they're watching a Spike Lee film. There's things he's speaking about within their community that Steve and I may not know as deeply. We may understand it. We may not know it as deeply in our bones. And so um, creating space to hear voices from other people who are who are a, a, of color or not of color, who are different filmmakers, who are influenced by him, who are critics, who are whatever they are, 
it allows for more conversations to exist in this world of, um, in this particular episode, when we're discussing the great Spike Lee, because he means something different to everybody. And so I think that this is a, such a novel way to approach it that respects both our points of views and creates space for other points of views to decorate our show. Actor, pundit, and co-host of Blurds in the Hood, Winston A. Marshall. Spike kind of called out the fact that, you know, we're just as human and have the same things going on with us as anybody else. And so for us to be put in this very one-track mind lens is a bunch of BS and that we're so much deeper than that on so many different levels. Director, writer, actor, and founder of Four Horsemen Films, Andre Gordon. It's almost like he's assumed the responsibility of, I'm going to speak the truth, and the truth is not always popular. Writer of the Pitch Perfect films and director of Blockers and Cinderella, Kay Cannon. Because he, he doesn't make a movie just to make a movie. And there's a lot of filmmakers who do. <laughs> like He's always had something to say, and he will always have something to say. Actor, writer, comedian, co-host of Blurds in the Hood and the host of the Bad Titan podcast, Jay Washington. He's unwavering. You know, you may not like it. You may get mad. That's fine. Whatever. But it's still going to be him. And today, what we're starting with is just as we did with Wells, with Hitchcock, with Kurosawa and with Coppola, is we're just going to talk through sort of Spike's life and his work in general. And then following up, the two movies we've chosen to do are just, in my opinion, two incredible masterpieces, which are yeah. Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X. Yep. So this is this is a lot to enter in on. And I have been thinking really deeply about Spike Lee for probably a month now yeah. because we, you know, because of some, some deaths, we kind of kept pushing this conversation, which has yeah. given me more time to think about him. <laughs> uh, and my first question for you, John, is when did you first come to Spike Lee? I came to Spike Lee with, um, she's got to have it. It, oh, it was wow. right at that time where I was, you know, starting to be more aware of independent film. And I was reading all the magazines and I was just, I was in my first couple of years of college, I think my first trip through college, which ended terribly. And I was in love with filmmaking. I was in love with rebellion. I was in love with hearing uh, points of views from different uh, people. And I wanted to understand the idea of this independent filmmaking. And, they, and it, it popped up on Entertainment Weekly or something like this. Uh, she's got to have it. You got to see this. You got to see Spike. And of course, at the same time, I'm a massive sports fan. So right. Mars Blackman is doing commercials with um, uh, Michael Jordan, Mars Blackman played by Spike Lee. So at the same time, I'm having two black and white situations. By that, I mean, Mar those commercials were usually shot in black and white. Yeah. And she's got to have it in black and white. So having this experience with Spike Lee, Checking both my sports addiction and my film addiction at the same time was one of those rare things that changed my perspective of what a filmmaker is. You know, my idea of filmmaker was Steven Spielberg or right. John Ford, you know, these kind of people who just did film and sat on sets all day. Well, here comes this young punk kid who is black and is kind of breaking through these walls and making people see things about a culture or about an experience that they hadn't seen in film before. And thank God the public perception or the mainstream public perception was changing or created space for more independent voices to come in, come in there in the late eighties, early nineties. And so I rented, she's got to have it because I saw it on either entertainment weekly or, or premiere or one of those magazines profiled coming out of a festival 
uh, probably TIFF or probably uh, uh, whatever festivals were going on there at that time. And I watched it. And that was my first experience with Spike Lee. And I got to say, it was a glorified student film, but it had something really interesting to say that I hadn't seen before. And then, of course, Do the Right Thing happened, and that exploded my brain completely. Honestly, I would say the very first interaction with Spike or my first being aware of who Spike Lee was legitimately was him as a Knicks fan. It's it's seeing him courtside and everybody being like, you know, being like, why do I see that guy at every single game? And they're like, that's one of the most famous directors of all time. I remember becoming aware of Spike Lee the moment that I was really interested in the other side of the camera. You know, I, I saw the films, I knew the films, but then I really realized that, wow, there's somebody out there who looks like me, who's directing films that are personal to him with a group of people that he likes and goes to often. And uh, there were some subject matters that, that, he, uh, that he had in his movies that I really you know, gravitated towards and uh, struck a resonance with me. And, and I remember feeling like, wow, this is someone I want to take a, a deeper dive into. I was a kid, uh, mid-80s, mid-late 80s, back in Chicago, and on WGN, I remember catching School Days for the first time. And it was something about that movie that it was a black college experience and it was just the dancing, the musical numbers and everything. It had me hooked. For me, it was Do the Right Thing. It was Mm. 100. And and I remember seeing it in the theater in Berkeley and just, it's just what you said. It blew blew up my brain. Like it it is, I think, one of the most remarkable films of all time. And we'll certainly go into it. And I I have another question for you. And maybe this is a tough one to answer, but Mm. is... How do you, what do you think Spike Lee changed? What did he do for you personally? Did he change the way you saw the world? I guess that's really my question. Do I feel that Spike has changed me? Yes, I do. I feel he's changed me as my view of the world, number one. Uh, My view as what I want to present forth as any art, whether it be stand-up, whether it be acting, whether it be anything I write, Um, to be true to whatever I want to present. And stand firm on my ground. You know, growing up through my life, um, my best friend, honestly, was usually black. You know, like growing up through, even back when I was uh, living in my first initial places that I was living in, I gravitated to the kids. Yeah, I had white friends, but I gravitated to kids with color. And I would have conversations about their experiences. And then when I got to high school, my best friend, Maurice, who we might hear from in this episode, he, uh, he and I, you know, we became friends and I got to experience the, the his experience through the world through the, the eyes of a black man you know uh, with a white mom and a black father what's that experience like you know and so all of that was opening the door to me understanding that there were other voices that were available uh, going on in the world and it was my awakening to this idea of rebellion i wanted to rebel against this idea of the white establishment controlling everything and it was at that age where my mind was open to these conversations you know and so it affected me the slavery experience in high school affected me learning about it affected me because i wanted to be educated about this more it doesn't mean i hated my country i think it's like stupid critical race theory stuff drives me insane it's about understanding the flaws and the negativity of the history of this country, but still loving this country. Look, I may have found flaws with my father. I still love my fucking father. So right. just these kinds of things. And so it opened the door for me to be like, hey, here comes someone new with a new perspective, with a new idea. Oh, and it just hit me at the right time. It was the right time where I was awakening. 
Public Enemy was happening as well, which was teaching us about the history of racism in this country through incredible beats, incredible rhythms. Boogie Down Productions, BDP, KRS-One was teaching us about this. We're on the precipice of of uh, of, of uh, gangster rap or LA rap or West Coast rap rather in the early '90s when Ice T and NWA were teaching about the black experience on the West Coast with police. You know. All of these things were happening around this time in the pop culture zeitgeist and MTV was broadcasting all of this. So and 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 basketball, NBA was booming with black stars. So all of it was happening. Uh, black people were having an experience, having a moment in the culture, and you had to pay attention to it. And so Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, all of this stuff was happening around the same time. And so you had to pay attention to all of it. And I think Spike came at the right time with the right attitude, the right sensibility, and it just caught my attention and turned me on artistically and creatively on so many levels. For me, I I can't, I don't think you can overestimate how influential Spike Lee was. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's like we talked about, obviously, in the course of this show, what some of the formative things for me, Star Trek obviously being a huge one, <laughs> comic books, when I first saw Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon, you know, there's a whole bunch of them. And I think, when I saw Do the Right Thing, it, it, I honestly think this was a life changing moment for me. Mm. And, and, and part of it is, is I'm, you know, my background's like the opposite. I didn't have any black friends growing right. up. I grew up in Marin County in a pretty dominantly, you know, white area. Mm. I am, I would say that, you know, I am a very white, white guy, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, Jewish, uh, from right. that kind of culture, by the way, this is the most embarrassing thing in the world. I don't know if I've ever told you this. Did I ever tell you what my junior high musical was? No. So I acted, I acted in everything from the time I was in second grade. And so junior high, the musical that my almost entirely white junior high school chose to do was the whiz. Oh, wow. And uh, Shemi Johnson, who is extremely talented, the, like one of the few African-Americans in the school, played Dorothy. And everybody else in the show was white. Wow. And even in at, at 11 or whatever age I was then, I knew that this was not correct. <laughs> you know, like this you is the best. Something was off here. Yeah. This is not what you were supposed to do. <laughs> and, and so what happened to me, I think, was I, I and it's funny, we just did uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yeah. And I think. That was my understanding of race in a lot of ways was I came from the you know white liberal family and I just was like, yeah, we need to become colorblind and people are people. And I had a very sort of naive liberal attitude, mm -hmm. you know, like wasn't I wasn't raised in any kind of a racist environment. I was raised I, in a sheltered environment, you know? Yeah, yeah. And when I saw Do the Right Thing, it's like, I mean, you know, I've talked about the fact that this big play that I did in college called Brothers was about race relations on college campuses. Well, that came from Spike Lee. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? Like that, because yeah. what, what I think, you know, they always say to writers, young writers, you know, write what you know. And my, yeah. my first couple of plays were very much about experiences of mine. Mm -hmm. But what I have come to is sometimes it's write what you want to learn about. Yeah. You know, and so because of Do the Right Thing, that started what for me honestly has been a lifelong fascination uh, not obsession but like with understanding race relations in this mm -hmm. country mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. understanding these people that are just told whose whose background is so different from mine yeah and trying to figure that out and through you know cuz brothers was this collaboration with a great uh, african-american playwright that we built out of improv with this black theater workshop that had never spoken to the drama department at berkeley like they were entirely separate and so we brought these actors together and it was me 
interviewing them and then doing improvs with them and figuring out their stories. That's where all that came from. And then, you know, it's like, I did so many projects that were based on the African-American experience in a weird way. And it's like, I, although I would never do that today yeah. because I would go, what the fuck is this white Jewish kid like have to have to say about those things. But at the time it was like, you know, that's why I've read all these books. That's why I've spoke to all these people, read all this stuff. And it all starts with Spike Lee, yeah. all of it. Yeah. You know, that's how, that's how big he is. And, and I'll tell you the thing as I've been thinking about him and, and, and I want to get into sort of what his, mm. you know, his life and we'll, we'll go through a lot of it, but sure. people think they have this image of him of like, he's the angry black man. You know yeah. what I mean? Of course. Yeah. I have never felt that his work has omitted any anger. I have felt that Spike Lee's work has omitted a lot of pain that people haven't seen um, amongst different uh, characters and typically, uh, it's been uh, those of color. That pain that Spike Lee is able to encapsulate on on camera, I think it makes some people uncomfortable, people who have not yet seen it or have not known how to deal with it. And I think the only way that some know how to label it is anger because it's not something that people who are not in the community or willing to look at the, those aspects of the community have to deal with. And this fear that what Spike Lee is preaching, which a lot of people, not, and you know, we remember we're all of that age. Remember, like people were saying, oh, he's preaching black nationalism. He's preaching, you know, he's, you know, he's using public enemy. They have these uh, sometimes these the anti-white stuff, the anti-Jewish stuff. You know, there was all of that stuff around. So they were constantly trying to paint him with this radical brush that they'd used on numerous radical black radicals in the past. And I'll tell you the thing that strikes me. Now, having spent like a month thinking about mm -hmm. Spike Lee, it's not his anger that defines him. It's his love. Yeah. He is so loving of mm -hmm. all of these characters, even characters that maybe have traits that we might not like. Yeah. Like he, he that's what's so profound about him to me is deep, deep love. No matter what character you see in his film, if they're presented into you in front of the camera, for more than a second, if you got to spend time with them, there's a reason you're spending time with them. You have to understand that, okay, this person is perceived as this way, but here's why they may be this way, why they think this way, why their mindset is changing. It's so much about a character. And as a director, for him to write a lot of the projects, to write these characters, and then go from I've written the characters and written the film and can't help to cast the character, watch the casting of the characters, to now be in the director's chair and have them all act out and deliver on what my vision is that's a lot if you spend time with it if if he spends time with his characters you develop an understanding that there's a, a lot of layers here a multi-dimensional character right and every time i watch a movie that spike lee does i feel that underlying sense of sorrow and that hope of of hope of overcoming I feel every every single movie, I feel like he's got something that someone's got to deal with and overcome. And there's pain in that. And sure, there's anger in that for the character. But that's an anger that a lot of us feel trying to overcome. It's hard just to be out in this game, you know? The, the, this is the thing that I think people get wrong about Spike Lee is because they see all the conflict in his films and they think, therefore, his message is divisive. And it's really almost always the opposite. It's like, here, look at how complicated humans are and how they come into conflict 
And yet we can understand each other in a way that you didn't think we could. I think so many people just want to see everything in black and white, just straight up as what they want it to be. But in all of our actuality and the truth is the world is complex. We as humans are complex on a daily basis. So why not show that? Yeah, it might not. It, it, it's not digestible as what you would like it to be, you know, but it's just the truth. There are black soldiers like that. There are black men and women like that. You know, you watch every white person that's introduced in a Spike Lee film isn't evil. You know, some may have, they may be misunderstood. Danny Aiello and Do the Right Thing. You know, he grew up a certain way. He's in Brooklyn. You know, he's like, yeah, I'm Italian, but I got to, I'm Italian. This is why Italians are on my walls. And then, you know, no matter how much the neighborhood is like, yo, Sal, put some black people on the wall. He like, this is my spot. What's the problem? He doesn't understand it. But at the, towards the end, Sal understands. Danielle Yellow is so great in Do the Right Thing. Oh, yeah. He's so good to Spike's sister who's playing, you know, who's actually playing Spike's sister in the movie. Yet he has that moment at the end. Yet he has that situation. And I think that he's really done a beautiful job of capturing what it's like to be not only in our shoes, but as we stated with the other movies, in everyone's shoes, whether it be from the side of those who are empathetic or those who are perpetrating the behavior that is causing them to have to overcome. So there, there, may, there may seem some anger in that, but I think that anger may be mislabeled by some as either guilt or confusion or unawareness. John Torturo. Yep gets called out by Spikes, by Mookie there in the movie and says like, dude, you love all these black people, black people, who's your favorite basketball player? Who's your favorite singer? Blah, blah, blah. But yet you hate black people. It's it's turning the light on people yep. to understand. He's not coming from a place of kill all white people. He's coming from a place of trying, even the Malcolm X story, which is with, which is inherent at the beginning. Certainly he says he has that moment with that uh, female college white student says, she says, I want to help in some way. And he goes, right. you can't help because you're white. Get out of here. And then later when changes, he's gone through all he's gone through, he understands that I have to change my um, group to accept white people who want to help. And so these are these things. Always his characters are not about being angry. They're about discovering and exploring and understanding and seeing the flaws within themselves. Yep. They're not turning to these you know, paragons of virtue. They've got their own journeys to go on because they're human beings. And you're right. A lot of that, and that's a great thing you bring up, Steve. It isn't hate. It's education. It's love. It's understanding right. that he's teaching in these films. You know? Well, we have this weird idea that the characters that we love have to be perfect and mm. the characters that we that do bad things, we therefore have to hate. And it's like, I mean, right from Mookie and do the right thing, Mookie, his character, that guy's not perfect. He's not perfect in any way, shape, or form. No. The great thing that if you look at the consistency what Spike does, he actually doesn't cast himself as the, the perfect person. He usually casts himself as the one with the with the flaw that can crumble the story. And and, and see a lot of actors who write and direct, they will cast themselves as the like the, the, that main lead who who everyone reveres. And he casts himself as the person who is dealing with the most problem, um, who's dealing with the, the most complexity. I mean, to me, that not only speaks to his selflessness, he always does what's best for the story. And that's what I think makes him so great. His ego does not get in the way. And you go all the way to like Black Klansman, 
He mm-hmm. and and again, are those characters perfect? Right. No, they're complicated people. Yeah. Um. So, uh, he was born in 1957. I never knew his actual name, which is Shelton yeah. Jackson Lee. Um. I, I understand why you might have switched to Spike. Uh, <laughs> he's born in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's funny. I, I I don't can't give you this quote exactly correctly, but basically, he said something like he was raised to a generation where he was repeatedly told you were told you had to be 10 times better than a white kid Mm -hmm. and that his mother essentially said fuck that you have to be yourself oh yeah and and it sounds like his between his mother and father Mm -hmm. there is such a um a perfect setup of who he's going to become his mom's an english teacher very much her own kind of person and she loves movies So she dragged him and his brother to movie. They didn't want to go. Mm -hmm. And she dragged him to movies over and over again. So he grew up on Mean Streets and Godfather and all those 70s films. Yeah. And his father hated movies and hated movies because of the depiction of Mm African-Americans in film and definitely hated black exploitation films. And so it almost feels like Spike Lee goes to solve those two things. Mm. Mom who loves movies yeah. And dad who hates the depiction of African-American movies and Spike, look at the movies that Spike Lee makes, you know? Yeah. Um, and how many directors have we spoken about who are influenced by their parents or their parents' relationship, right? The Steven Spielberg with the stuff with his dad and his mom uh, right there as well. Yeah, know? totally. Close encounters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he moves to Brooklyn when he's a kid. He goes to Morehouse, which is where he directed his first uh, film. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a bachelor's in mass communications. And then he heads off to NYU to the Tisch School of the Arts for a graduate degree in film. He starts in 1979. Want to know what the first movie they showed him was in film school? Taxi Driver. Birth of a Nation. Oh, crap. Of course. And, and what, what he says was that they they said, like, this is the father of cinema. And they talked mm-hmm. about his innovations. And they talked about how he changed the world of film and created the feature film and said all. And he, what, what Spike says is that nobody... In the entire class mentioned the Klan, mentioned the racism of the film, mentioned yeah. how this inspired violence against African-Americans, you know, for the next century. Mm-hmm. They said nothing about it. Yeah. And what's funny is because I was shown Birth of a Nation in film school. It wasn't the first film that we saw, but it was pretty early. Yeah. I don't think they said anything about that stuff in, at USC either. I've never seen it because I came around at a time when I heard about the stuff involved in it. And then, so I've never watched it because there's nothing that film has to teach me that I couldn't learn in any other film that uses those techniques. So I don't never need to watch it. Yeah. I don't think you need to. I think you could, you could look at the Wikipedia article of what was important about it and get everything you needed to get. Yeah. And uh, by the way, he was in school with Ang Lee. Yes. uh, At NYU. Uh, Ernst Dickerson, who's, you know, TV director, cinematographer. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, this is where he creates the name. 40 Acres and a Mule, which, of course, is in reference to the post-Civil War deal with, you know, ex-slaves that was that America never delivered on. No. And then he's coming out of film school and he doesn't know what he's going to do. And he wrote She's Gotta Have It, which uh, he made for one hundred seventy five thousand dollars, which he raised himself. It's like, you know, this is Kickstarter before there was Kickstarter (laughs) and he didn't want to act in it. Yeah. He just was out of money and couldn't afford another actor. So he plays the part. They shoot it in 12 days. Yeah. It gets a standing ovation in Cannes. And this is, and again, I go back to thinking about his father. We had never seen African Americans on screen like this. You'll recall that 
up until a certain point, we had seen black people only really as slaves in movies. We didn't see the human side of them outside of bondage. And the interesting parallel I saw that he did was he took the bondage, not just from the uh, chains perspective, but a lot of times what they were dealing with within their society and or within their friends, within their work, within their, their struggles, he pulled the curtain back so people could see how blacks in certain cities and certain cultures truly were. And I think that changed and opened the door, not only for actors, but for filmmakers, because suddenly you have actors who could have dimension of color on screen beyond just that of a slave. Or if it was a drug dealer or someone in, from the streets, they had dimension and struggled with a lot of those issues that weren't just about pushing forward a white story. It was pushing forward a black story, uh, which is an American story. I didn't see it until a couple years later. I think I saw it after I saw Do the Right Thing. Mm -hmm. Then I went back and saw She's Gotta Have It. Yeah. And it, it's very much a student art film yeah. kind of film. Yes. But also told from a woman's mm -hmm. point of view. A woman is the lead in dealing with all this stuff, you know. And um, I found it to be that fascinating. Because I think a lot of the things, like uh, some people have mentioned before in the past, like, oh, why are his uh, films always male led? Well, you got to go back. She's got to have it. That's yep. a female led film that he mm -hmm. did. And, you know, and it made a, a, a chunk of change and $7 million. Um, yeah. $7 million. And AO Scott in New York times said this was a new portrayal of black men and women on screen that had not been seen before. And so that, that tells you right there how um, groundbreaking he was even from the beginning with his first official theatrically released film. Well, it, what's so funny about it is you go like, you know, here it's 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 the late 80s. Mm. How, how could this never because all it is, you know, what's groundbreaking about it. There's just people. Yeah, they're yeah, they're not they're not seeing well, because, well, of course, it's a white establishment who was in charge of Hollywood. Yeah. And they saw it wasn't like we we did have the mod squad with Clarence Williams, of course. Sure. Uh, Michelle Nichols, Uhura in Star Trek, as you mentioned earlier, your love, uh, our love of Star Trek. And there were black characters in other shows that were of some, you know, level of badassery or coolness or that you could respect. But this is something different. This is showing people as black people at the time as like regular people who are hanging out, dealing with the stuff that they deal with. And that hadn't been seen in any kind of big theatrical film. Yeah. When you grow up watching movies, you know, I, I'm in my early 40s. You're seeing the same type of movie all the time. You know, you're seeing the same type of people. And, and not that you can't necessarily relate to people that don't look like you and don't grow up in, in areas that you grow up, but there's something about seeing this skinny black guy with big glasses create something and put it on screen. And I was like, wow. So, you know, I was watching an interview actually with him uh, today. He said, most of the time when you go to a studio, when you, when you're looking at movies, the only black guy you see is at the guard gate. And then <laughs> now you're, you're seeing this guy, bring something from blank page to screen. It was incredible to me and it really intrigued me. And what's interesting is at first I didn't know that he was a director when I was younger. I just saw him on camera. And, and then suddenly I'm thinking, well, he's the brains behind the creativity as well. I was inspired. I was inspired.
I didn't understand that Nike saw she's got to have it. Yeah. And they went, we want that guy, not necessarily as a director. They just had this image. Nike came up with the idea. Wouldn't it be interesting to see that actor with Michael Jordan? Yep. Mars Blackman. <laughs> it's just so bizarre to me. And that, and of course, without Nike, there's I, we might not have Spike Lee after that point. Because yeah. it's that money that allows him to make school days. Yeah. Well, you'd never really seen... And again, I was young when I first saw it, so I don't know if there had been any other ones. But to see a black college experience, and of course, Mission College is made up for the film, but it's taken from the the experiences at both Morehouse and Spellman, Morehouse in which you know Spike's an alumni of, as well as Samuel Samuel Jackson and all these other people. So take it, and then hearing about the HBCU experience, growing up with people, you know, as a kid, seeing people who went to HBCUs, and so you're hearing about their life, their fraternity life, their sorority lives, and then you see this film, and it's all put it together. And again, the musical numbers were amazing. Right here, this is where we start to understand Spike's social point of view as it's developing, yep. right? Because what he's talking about here, and it's something we deal with in the Latino community, is the difference between light-skinned Blacks and black skin blacks, uh, darker skin blacks. And this idea of, oh, light skinned blacks have it easier, but within the black community, out in the mm-hmm. white community, but within the black community, there is judgment because they're saying, oh, because you're white. Even now we have this term white passing Latino. That's a thing. Right. That's a right. legitimately a thing. And colorism is a big deal within in ethnic communities. And to see him showcase that, and not only was it groundbreaking for that, also, you're seeing the black experience, the, the sorry, the black college experience with the step shows, with the conversations, with the stuff that's going on. How many stars came out of that movie alone, you know, and, and, and having that experience, man, it always attracted me to his, his other projects. There is so much in school days to take and enjoy within the film, if even if the film overall itself doesn't work. Um, it's still a damn good film, and it's certainly better than higher learning. So to me, this is the thing that I, I really take, even even in his misses or his not good films, there's still enough here to enjoy and understand that he's got a point of view that is necessary and important, and he's tackling these subjects head on and right off the bat. He is not building into a 10th film, then he's going to drop a social justice thing. No, from the second film, and maybe even a little bit the first film, he has already trying to show you the black experience in a way that you've never seen it before and really deeply into it, not safely, not surface deeply into the black experience. I love that. So, so by the way, I should say, you mentioned higher learning. Can I tell you a funny story about that or an odd story? Sure. So uh, brothers, this play I did is 1990. Right. And um, one of the actors in it is a guy that, you know, which is Eddie Bowles. And that's where I yeah. met him. Love it. And Eddie became a lifelong friend and a buddy of Eddie Bowles is John Singleton. Oh, and Eddie Bowles took the videotape of Brothers to John Singleton and a year later, Higher Learning comes out and Brothers is about fraternities and relationships and interracial relationships. And it's like, now I'm not saying that he stole my idea, but it is exactly what happened. Interesting. All right. Um, Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, well, the other thing about uh, School Days, I think, is A, it shows how theatrical Spike can be. Yeah. Is that Spike isn't a real, a pure reality filmmaker mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. can certainly do that but he's also capable of let, let's go into a musical number and let's go into yes. you know we're going to show things other ways and the other thing i have to say is the introduction of Giancarlo. i think it might be esposito yeah. not esposito although i always said esposito man that guy is one of the great great actors oh yeah and school days is 
you know, where he first gets really discovered. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, and obviously he's amazing to do the right thing, which is his next film. Right. And, and also another thing about this film, dealing with apartheid, but also we see Spike understanding and beginning his lifelong respect for the actors who paved the way for black actors, yes. black filmmakers, black actors with Ozzie Davis. And in the next film, Do the Right Thing, we'll have Ozzie Davis and Ruby D being a part of this. So you can tell he has a respect and an appreciation for the current black actors, but also for the older black actors who paved the way for them. And, and it's an incredible uh, crew of, of people involved yep. in this for sure. Well, and this is where he, you know, Spike has consciously tried to bring in people both in front of and behind the camera and who bring in different perspectives. And this is the thing he that he said. And again, this isn't a direct quote, but basically he operates with two ideas. The first is that there are universal truths Mm -hmm. that that the human experience, we all have experiences that we share, regardless of our backgrounds and where we come from. And the second part, which is sounds contradictory, but is really complimentary, is that there are many ideas and many perspectives and many stories about those universal truths that should be shown. Yeah, yeah. Is that, yes, we share the truths, but coming at it from this direction is really, really important or coming at it from this other direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time, I'm sure at least two episodes and maybe more on Do the Right Thing. So I don't want to go too deep into it right now. But what I do think we have to say yeah. is that this remarkable film, in my opinion, one of the great films of all time, was sure. completely snubbed at the Oscars. Yes, yeah, so what a surprise. Wasn't even nominated. Yeah, I know. Like, I know. I, and you go, and, and it's like, is Driving Miss Daisy a terrible movie? No. Is it a largely forgettable movie? Yes. Is it a really, really safe, comfortable movie about race? Absolutely. Does it compare to Do the Right Thing? Not even fucking close. And, and when you say Sean, do you mean that they didn't win anything? They were still nominated for nope. screenplay and for um, for screenplay, yeah, holding actor with Danny Aiello, but they didn't win anything. And um, and not even nominated for picture or director. Yeah, no, of course not. You're not going to have a, a, a you know a film like this, which exposes police brutality, exposes racism within the system, um, ex- blatantly speaks about racism in a way that's never been handled in American culture before in quite this way. I mean, having that scene where all those characters are saying the worst possible derogatory names about other ethnicities when they themselves are an ethnicity. Yep. That's such an ex- ex- um, exposure of what's actually bubbling. Be- the real life of our lives was right there in that scene. And that's 1989, yep. 89. So this thing to think about it, people think, Oh, the eighties, blah, blah, blah. no, People were publicly, people were socially conscious in the 80s as well. Hell, they were all the way back to abolitionist days. They were socially conscious. But yes, in the 80s as well. These aren't new ideas that are happening now in 2022 all of a sudden. This has been a thing. And it was Spike exposing it in Do the Right Thing that really kind of blew stuff up. And of course, the Oscars, a white establishment, they will give you the little crumbs off the table by nominating your white actor, nominating the screenplay to say, hey, keep going, kid but they're not going to give you a shot at the brass ring. They'd rather give it to the film that makes them feel better about race. That makes them feel well cuddly yeah. and safe about race, which is um, uh, driving Miss Daisy. And not by the way, not a bad movie and not the a bad movie. performance between Morgan, Morgan Freeman and Jessica Tandy. Absolutely fantastic. It's a genuinely sweet movie between them. 
Yep. It is not a best picture in any way, shape, or form to show you what the best of 1989 films were and Spike Lee being snubbed. This was the beginning of me being conscious about questioning the authenticity of winning an Oscar. Right at that time in my mind, you know, because I'm so in love with film, I'm starting to understand the politics of film behind the scenes, you know? Me too. It's a, I had the exact same moment because mm -hmm. Do the Right Thing was so powerful to yeah. me. And it's just like, I always wanted to believe in this meritocracy. And even to this day, in my 50s, I still this go, well, aren't, if you're really good and work really hard, doesn't that work? No. No. And and, and like, because to me, the, the genius of Do the Right Thing is just fucking undeniable. I mean, it's just such a brilliant movie. And, and, and it's not that people we've already talked about, like Wells or Coppola, didn't have their struggles in trying to make the movies they wanted to make. Right. You know, lots of filmmakers, making movies is hard and there are mm -hmm. always going to be struggles. But what Spike Lee is up against at the level of his talent and the fact that he will continue throughout his entire career, have to figure out how to get money to make a movie. Yeah despite his incredible track record is just so sad. And, and part of it is the fucking commercials. One of the things I do like about Spike Lee that are not talked about a lot. It's uh, I know it's going to sound silly, but I also like that he directs the Capital One commercials for Samuel L. Jackson. He directs all those spots, the, the, his diversity. Okay. So I'm going to just get that out of the way. I love that. He can still, he's diverse. It's not like, Oh, he's just this, give him a street, a street movie. And that's all he can do. He can do studio films inside man. He can do Jungle Fever, Mobita Blues. He can do commercials. So I just wanted to say I love that about him. He does Levi's. He does more with Mikey, he, Nike. He does, you know, Converse, Taco Bell, Ben and & Jerry's. And that's how he raises the money for his next film, which is Mo Better Blues, which I haven't seen in a long time. Yeah. It wasn't one of my favorites, mm -hmm. but it is his first working with Denzel. Um, obviously, that's an important partnership. And Wesley. I mean, Wesley is so good in this film, in Mo' Better Blues. And this is a time where Wesley is coming up and yeah. becoming his own power as a black actor. He is, what, a, just a few years away from Blade. But before that, he's doing like Passenger 57. He's doing all these films around this time that are really kind of blowing him up at the same time as Denzel in a different way. Denzel, more the artistic, Wesley, more the populist. These are the approaches that they're having at the time. And he had them both in his movie, in this love triangle, and this was his homage to his father, who was yep. a jazz musician, uh, Bill Lee. And and so having this come about the way it came about, but just like School Days, not quite 100% there. But the but visually, the cinematography, because I think Dickerson does the cinematography in that one as well. I think so, yeah. Yeah, the music, the cinematography, the things they show you, the experience of the of, of, of a black jazz at that time, you know, all of the things that they explore here in the film are really, really interesting and sometimes a bit brutal, to be honest. And when you look at Giant, which is funny, he, he played Giant, um, Mo Better Blues, you're rooting for the guy. And, and the scene where he just gets pummeled in the, in the um, alleyway, it's like he, he's run his mouth. This, you know, he's running his mouth, running his mouth. And then finally, he takes off his glasses and don't break these. I mean, first of all, as a writer, don't break my glasses. He's about to get his face broken. And I do want to say one thing, because I, I know we're going to talk a lot about Do the Right Thing. It isn't just about, it's also a police brutality. It's also about yeah. 
respecting the community, the black yep. community, respect seeing the differences within the black community who make fun of their older people like the mayor, but also have respect for people like Ruby D, but also have, you know, but also have their own issues with each other. Uh, so all of that is here within this uh, great film of Do the Right Thing. But he goes a completely different direction diving into the jazz world. And I have to say, this is the one film that kind of lets me down a little because I don't think Spike is as deeply entrenched in the jazz, in the idea of loving jazz, because I don't sense the love of jazz when I watch the movie 100%. And I think he wasn't 100% dialed into that, even though his father was. I didn't sense that from the movie. And unfortunately, I think that's what kind of keeps the movie from being as great as it could have been. I haven't seen it in a really long time, but my, mm. my memory is that there's sort of a distance to it. Yes. You know what I mean? You don't feel pulled into the film the way you kind of want to. There was a moment in a movie that struck me as a filmmaker, as an entertainer, where I realized I could do this because I had realized that somebody was making movies not just for commercial purposes, not just for historical purposes, not just for popcorn value. And I think the very first movie that I was like, oh my gosh, was Jungle Fever. When I saw, and John, you're going to laugh because you know me. <laughs> when I saw Jungle Fever, <laughs> you know, given, <laughs> given, you know, who I was dating and, and like who I ended up marrying and, and, and you know, when I was younger, you know, I, who I grew up around at, at one point, once I moved from one place to the next, I was like, wow, this, he's telling a story that it's kind of like secretly in my hand and no one really wanted to talk about it at the time. And I was just very taken being from this incredibly like practically like hundred percent white town, that story of a, you know, an, an Italian white woman, being with a black man, it was just a story that I needed to see. And, you know, like, and, and the ramifications of that. And I'm like, he's making movies about real things. And, and it doesn't have to be this big, you know, it doesn't have to be ET on a bike. It doesn't have to be um, something uh, outlandish or, or, or jaws. It could be something like meaningful and personal that people are dealing with cultural identity. And then I started looking further and I was like, wow, the, all these, all of his movies really do have a sense of cultural struggle, whether it be Mo Better Blues, Malcolm X, He Got Game. All these great films dealt with these issues culturally that I really related to. I think oh. the smaller story with Samuel Jackson, Ruby D, and Ozzie Davis is astounding. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. And I think the bigger story is less good not that it's bad but it's right. it's like that sam jackson part of that film is unbelievable right of course he based it on the marvin Gaye situation which had happened i think just a year or two before where marvin Gaye's father had killed him because of the rumor is that marvin Gaye had gone back on the drugs after he'd cleaned himself up and sexual healing was a huge success and then that money came back and he is his demons visited him again and his father who was a, a very religious man killed him because Either he attacked him or he felt that his son had let him down and he felt it was better for him to die than to live this kind of life because they had seen what that had done to him for so many years in their family. So that scene where Samuel L. Jackson is dancing for yeah. Ozzie Davis and he shoots him and Ruby D's, I remember just 
bawling oh, in yeah. the theater because Ruby D screams of a mother watching her own husband kill their son right in front of her um, just was devastating. And the Bible being there. So that's his commentary on religion. There, there's yep. nothing that he is afraid to tackle. Even these pillars of the black community, which is religion, um, he is able to attack it and address it. And of course, Samuel, this is one of those things that launches Samuel oh, yeah. and, and introduces Halle Berry mm-hmm. and um, Annabella Shora, who at the time was kind of an independent film darling as well with the films that she had been doing. I can't remember the film she did with Ron Eldar that kind of really announced her. And then you see that. But you're right. The thing with I think it's a miscast thing with Wesley. I think Wesley's a good actor. I don't think he was the right choice for this. And I wonder if another black actor was maybe would have been the better choice to have better chemistry with Annabella Shura. But once again, he's confronting interracial relationships, right? Yep. Let's deal with colorism. Let's deal with racism. Now let's deal with interracial relationships. The image that I that I remember, like uh, the final moment or one of the final moments when Wesley Snipes is back with his wife mm. and they're having sex and his wife is crying and laughing. This indication of like, I'm not really back with you, but I'm with you and I love you. And there's all this pain and all this, like, I'm so happy that we're back. And then I think their daughter hearing them be happy and having sex again, like that stayed with me forever (laughs) because I was just like, it became more than just race, but it became also of like a relationship kind of going through something very difficult and coming back to each other. So you get the sense why white people, white critics at the time, both male and female, want to designate him as the angry black filmmaker yep. because he's bringing these things up in a very open and honest and in-your-face way, and people wanted it to be safer. Well, and this is the thing you bring up another of what I think is one of his key traits, you know, mm-hmm. is that one, I, you know, as I said, I think that his love is key. And the second is his courage. Yes. Like this guy, I don't know if he stays up night scared shitless about what he's <laughs> about to do, but it doesn't show yeah. like he goes right at issues. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is he doesn't, it's, it's in do the right thing. It's in all, all of these films is yeah. he is totally happy to show something that is difficult or that, yeah. not, you know, it's not just, Hey, let's make the African-American community feel great about everything. That's not what he's doing. Right. Or he let's not condemn all these. It's not what he's doing. He is showing things that are complicated yeah. and difficult and going, okay, look at this, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, the interracial situation affects both white people seeing that, mm-hmm. but also black people seeing a black man with a white woman that comes up in the movie too, the idea within, which I had no idea about. And this was what's great about Spike. Yeah. If you're open to it, Spike is teaching you about the black community. And I had no idea that within the black community, there were black women who hate the fact that their black men go off with white women and say that that's them essentially are saying they're rejecting black women and that this is a sub, this is an issue within the black community of black women versus black men and this idea of and black men versus black women. So just fascinating to see the exploration and brother, it leads, I mean, seeing Frank Vincent beat Annabella Shore at that for daring to date a black and, and exposing that within the Italian culture, their issues yep. with black men dating their uh, daughters or their wives or girlfriends or whatever. Like it's, it's, I mean, it may, it wasn't a perfect film, but there was a lot that was exposed here that was chilling to watch 
in Jungle Fever, and he doesn't pull the punches. Nope. Well, the, I think what one of the things he exposes is how much we all live in silos. You know, we grow yeah. up in our little world, yeah. and then you get this, and that there's all these things growing, going on in another world that you just didn't even know about. Like, I know this isn't from Spike Lee, but I remember uh, there's that, uh, I think it's the Chris Rock movie, but when I first started to learn about all the issues with black hair, Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, the right. first place I started to learn this is in the next film that he makes, which is, of course, Malcolm X. Yes. Because right. they have the conch, you yeah. know, like, and I didn't know anything. But how would I know anything about that until you see it? Absolutely. I first came to see Malcolm X as a school trip. That was a school trip. We all went. They bought tickets out for the theater and we all went to as a student, students in school. It was one of our school trips to go see Malcolm X. I will never forget that. What did the other kids think? Everybody just was like, we just were all, I think we all talked about it on the school bus coming back. Everybody just couldn't, we were like, whoa, did this really happen? You know, because like, you you see, it's a movie. So you're like, wait, what? And then you realize it's based on the true story of what happened to him. You're like, wait, he got killed? Why did he get killed? Because that was one of the things I think a lot of us didn't understand coming out of it was why was he killed? Mostly, you're taught a lot about Martin Luther King. We don't really learn a lot about Malcolm X. And what you do learn is that, you know, it's, there's a danger there. You know, that's, that's marked off, that's roped off caution, do not enter. <laughs> so seeing the movie through the guise of cinema was also a masterclass in history, I felt, where there were, there were issues in the complexity in the character of Malcolm X that I was able to see, um, uh, that really was eye-opening and it gave me a chance to uh, just to look at things from a different perspective. And that's what I think film is, right? Film for the great filmmakers give you a chance to look at things from another perspective. So when I saw that movie, I was like, wow, there's a lot that I don't know. And it was great for me to dig deeper. And again, this is a film that we're going to talk about for yeah. many episodes, I think, yeah. so we won't go into too much detail. But let's just say Malcolm X is, I think, a masterpiece. You know? Yeah, I agree. And I and I remember, that as, as Steve has said, and you know, we've talked about how Spike Lee has kind of opened the door, or opened our doors of perception, for lack of a better term. And certainly here with uh, Malcolm X, this one changed my life. And, you know, I interviewed Denzel Washington a couple of years ago for Equalizer 2. And before we started the interview, or after we were done, actually, I sat up and I said, before I leave, I just want to tell you, thank you for Malcolm X because it changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. And he was very gracious in receiving the compliment because at the time I was in a college that I absolutely hated. I was in an experience right. that I absolutely hated. I was in a fraternity that I absolutely fucking hated. And I didn't understand how to get out and I couldn't see straight. And it was the beginning of all my, you know, my understanding that I had these mental health issues, these self-esteem issues, self-worth issues. I went to see Malcolm X by myself, maybe eight people in the theater mm. um, there in, uh, in uh, Fairfax, Virginia. And I remember that line where the young kid wants to be a part of the black uh, Muslims and and Malcolm says to him, "You should never be part of a group that you don't fully explore." Um, and I just that moment just kind of hit me because I joined the fraternity in a desperate attempt to be connected to the right. school because I didn't have that many friends and didn't understand, and that really blew up in my face. And that night, I went home or back to the trailer we were all living in because that's where they put us for fraternity housing. 
I packed up all my letters. I left them on the shelf. I packed up my clothes the next morning and, uh, and I left the school and I left the fraternity completely. And, and that was the reason why, Mm. because that kind of finally awakened something in me like, Hey, you're not happy here. You didn't explore this. You shouldn't be doing this. Get out of it. Now the black kid in the film obviously becomes a black Muslim and all that. But for me, whatever reason that exchange kind of woke me up. Um, and I remember just being absolutely blown away by this. And I went back and reread the autobiography of Malcolm X from Alex Haley. And just, this was an incredible portrayal. But once again, Steve, this is 1992. It's only three years after do the right thing. He is dragging us and shoving this into our face to make us understand that the black experience needs to be respected in this country. What they did with Malcolm X and and how you're attached almost to some violent acts and some violent rhetoric, it's 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 brilliant because again, if you remove all of the outside issues and just look at what some of these characters are doing on its face, most people would think, "Hey, I, I can't go along with that." But then you're like, "Wow, these are real people, and they're really going through their own things," and and I want to know more. And and I'm feeling for them, and I just feel like, and it's a long answer, but the the, the feelings that he elicits for all these different characters, whether it be from feeling like, oh, race trader in Jungle Fever, or Malcolm X, is that too is that too extreme? Or uh, Mobita Blues, this guy, he he owes money, he's gonna get what's coming to him. It's profound, and it had a lasting effect on me as a writer and a director. Well, and it's such a, I don't know quite how to put it the right way, because uh, I think Do the Right Thing is a masterpiece too, but it is a, it's like a younger filmmaker aggressive yes. thing. Yeah. Malcolm X is just three years later, Yeah, is so, I, I think the weight of the importance of what he was doing, he felt, because it is such a mature Yeah. You know, like this is a film made to be a great film, an epic. A, it's an epic. That movie, I think it opened some people's eyes in Hollywood who would not necessarily look at anything black because it was a mainstream studio movie done by a black director with Denzel Washington, not some, you know, oh, you got Samuel Jackson just or Martin Lawrence screaming, you know, doing their black stick. It was an A plus movie. And naturally. It was not nominated for Best Picture or Director. Denzel was nominated, uh, but lost to Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman, which, hey, Al's great in Scent of a Woman, but come on. Yeah. I mean, do we need to go there any further? He was robbed. It's not even close. No. It's not even close. He embodies his character so well that a dude went and got a tattoo of him as Malcolm X, thinking it was actually Malcolm X. That's how well he portrayed this role. No, when I picture Malcolm X in my mind, you are, I'm actually picturing Denzel that. Washington. Even though we are now more privy to all of the old interviews and things he's done and we see him, it's like, that's, is that? No, that's not. You just keep back, you keep thinking back to Denzel Washington. Even now, after One Night in Miami, you would think of Kingsley Benadir, but you're like, nah, Denzel Washington. And it's taking, it's taking nothing away from Kingsley's portrayal of Malcolm X in that film because he is amazing in that film. But it's what Denzel does. He, again, he takes you on that ride. He shows you the layers of this character. He gave you every single layer of Malcolm X, some that you knew and many that you didn't. But again, you got to look at the time we're in. This is 90, this is 92 going to 93. You think they're going to, we're going to talk about a movie. We're going to put on a pedestal, a movie that, that idolizes and glorifies a man who was a civil rights leader, an icon, 
but for all intents and purposes was a shit stirrer for some people. Well, and this is it's it, this is the thing is that when you see a thing happen once, you kind of can think it's a coincidence. Right. But when you start see it over and over again, when people keep saying, hey, we're being snubbed, we're not giving the respect, we're blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And you see it once, you go, ah, come on. You know, maybe that was just that was just a weird thing that happened. Yeah. See it happen over and over again. You go like, oh, no, this is not a weird thing that's that just happened once. Right. This is, you know, because that movie is a remarkable, that is exactly mm -hmm. the kind of film that is supposed to be nominated for Best Picture. Yes. This is on the level of Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. These are the level of these films that profile a person in history and take you through the entire journey of that person's history and everything they went through. And they don't pull any punches on Malcolm. No. I mean, it, the whole beginning is, you know, him being that street hustler, him trying to survive, him dealing with his mom who's, you know, committed to a, a, a war yeah. and his father killed by these people in the Ku Klux Klan and him trying to, you know, kind of figure it out and hustle and do all those things and having some great joyous moments, getting with a white woman. And then, of course, the stuff with him and Delroy Lindo, which I think is really yeah. great. And it leads to him being put in jail eventually. And as you said, the conk and all of that is explored. But then we get this incredible experience with him in the jail, this, yep. where he becomes a black Muslim, that stuff where he meets, is it Martin E. Freeman, who's the actor who plays Elijah Muhammad, and the tear in yep. the, the way he frames and lights and shoots that scene to see the light from the blinds come onto his face just as the tears come down his face because he is so emotionally moved by meeting Elijah Muhammad because the pain inside of him has finally been soothed by finding a path, finding his, his place, and then later to have the disillusionment yep. of that. It's so powerful. And then which leads to the, the, the absolutely heartbreaking ending and again, Spike pulls no punches in showing the assassination. He doesn't go to nope. black frame. He doesn't say with with a with a with text. He shows you so you can feel the pain through Angela Bassett's tears, through seeing the uh, the bullets hitting Malcolm, and you understand and the craziness that happens afterwards. Yeah, and you understand the pain of the loss of a leader like this, just as he had turned that corner yep. to become a world global leader opening the door to all races, helping to accentuate and uplift the black experience and make it available to other people. And you say coincidence about spike coincidence about black leaders as well as oh, yeah. the power all being assassinated or killed by random quote unquote um, assassins. Well, it's the same thing I feel honestly, which we're, we're going to get into when we do, do the right thing about mm -hmm. the killing of young black men by the police is right. that, one or two, you can say, well, this was just this thing that happened and that's what happened. But when you see it over and when, when a community has been telling you over and over again that this thing is happening and then you see it happening over and over again, that's not just a random set of events. Right. This is also uh, uh, after Malcolm X is when he starts teaching uh, at film school, teaching at NYU, mm. where he still teaches, is now a tenured professor. And the, the other thing I find really interesting about Spike is he's going to make the movie that he's interested in making. Yeah. Yeah, I am sure Hollywood had came to him and said, we want you to make this kind of film or this kind of story about African-Americans. This is the kind of filmmaker we want you to be. And right. I don't think he ever does that. Uh, the next film is Crooklyn. Yeah. It's a really good film. Yeah. Uh, not one I've gone back to in a long time. Yeah. Uh, and then Clockers, which I think is a great film. Clockers is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, and again, different, like it's in a different, it's a different style. I think the level of stress of clockers is like, 
it's like the I know you don't like it, but the last act of of Goodfellas. It's like <laughs> you know, just like this massive amount of pressure that's just on you yeah. throughout on this guy that's on in this film is remarkable. Yeah, and look, we say he develops the relationships with Denzel. Yeah. We cannot also forget the relationship he develops with Giancarlo, but also yeah. the relationship he develops with Delroy Lindo. Oh, yeah. Who is fantastic here in Clockers. Mm-hmm. Fantastic in his most recent film, Dove Five Bloods. Fantastic in Malcolm X. You know, he wants to work with these great actors who don't get the opportunities that, that, that uh, uh, white actors get to be in a number of projects and be in a lot of projects and show what they can do and be series regulars all the time. He wants to uplift them. And they're great here in Clockers. And, and real quick with Crooklyn, you know, as um, Mo Better Blues is his love homage to his father, Crooklyn is his love homage to his mom and to yeah. his upbringing. And all. So that's what's beautiful about the film. If you haven't seen it, y'all haven't seen it in a while, you should definitely watch it. But yeah, this is the film here where he starts to move past necessary. Yes, the black experience is here, but he's starting to open the door to adaptations, to mm-hmm. other things to explore within other communities. So we see Spike growing as a filmmaker as well, I think, with Clockers. Uh, Girl 6 is next, which is not a movie I particularly like. Yeah, I didn't like Girl 6. Um, then Get on the Bus. Oh, uh, I love Get on the Bus because of the Million Man March. At the time, me... I think it was around was yeah I'm still around living in 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 DC Virginia area so I understood and 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 watched all the coverage of get on the bus of the uh, million in march and then the get on the bus is his opening the door to seeing all the different facets of black men in the black community the intelligent black man the not the not so intelligent black man the black man who is like handcuffed to his son yep. uh, the bus driver all these things are explored and then the end the 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 fact that they it's you know they 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 don't get there it's right. incredible but it's it was about the journey not necessarily about being there it was about them experiencing it um and i have to think that the negative reception of girl 6 and look the box office for clockers wasn't great or crooklyn wasn't great i think he wanted to go back to something that he understood and he felt as you said steve he wanted he wants to make the films he wants to make and i think he wanted to go back and touch base with the black community and respect the million man march and kind of push back against people trying to characterize it as farrakhan's thing that it was about more right. than that and that's what's great about the film then he starts to do documentaries and four little girls is the first one which is a fantastic documentary agreed yeah. i think he is i think people underestimate his documentary work i don't disagree with you yeah, I, I think he's – and what's interesting too is that he – I think he – I won't say he as a personality steps back. Maybe that's what it is. He steps back a little bit mm-hmm. and allows the story to tell itself. Yeah, he, It's like he, he's servicing what this truth is mm-hmm. that he wants to explore. We have changed the way we look at race based on Spike just calling things out. Uh, you look at He Got Game, for example, and the fact of how we look at athletes, especially black athletes, how we look – at fatherhood, uh, black fatherhood, things like that, just the stuff you got just from that and the expectations that come on us from, from uh, that come on black men as a whole. What a film, man. It's great. This is one of the most incredibly shot films. Like, yes, the stuff with, uh, D- uh, with Denzel is incredible. Mila Jovovich is fantastic in mm-hmm. this film, which I don't really say about a lot of films she's in. And, um, Obviously, taking Ray Allen, a man with no acting experience, right. who is a current NBA basketball star at the time, 
and putting him in this movie to play Denzel Washington's son. It was a bold decision. It could have absolutely blown up in his face, but it totally worked. I've directed some athletes and it is difficult to elicit performances that are um, unique, complex, authentic, real, full, and realized. Because athletes are really great, for the most part, um, excel world-class at their sport. And, and sometimes we may expect them to be world-class on camera, which almost diminishes the work that actors do. So for Spike Lee to get that type of depth and performance from Ray Allen, who that's all I've seen him in then and since then, I felt like it showed his ability not only to direct angles, but to direct actors. Not only to direct culture, but to direct people. And directing is so much more than just, okay, um, what's the composition of my shot? He's able to, it, it, it looks good, it feels real, and it feels honest. And that movie, I think, um, to get also Denzel, who had up until that point really played the clean, distinguished, or smooth around the edges type characters, he got something out of Denzel that I thought was also noteworthy. And once again, he is taking a topic that is currently happening in our society at the time, which is young black men complete, jumping out of high school, going right into the NBA, getting all this money, and then having some of them, not all, some of them deal with the fact that their fathers are in prison or their fathers are not around. And all of a sudden they show up right when they have all this money, right when they're going to go to all this fame. All of a sudden you care about your son because he's going to be famous or he's going to have a lot of money. And so exploring that within the black community, again, showing us a window into these really unique, um, um, deep stories in the black community. Uh, and it's so, and also indicting the NCAA, also yep. inciting the fact that they make money off these black right. men and and lie that they're giving them an education in exchange, which is one of the stupidest excuses I've ever heard in the world when they know they're doing it to line their pockets. Oh yeah. The um, Denzel's performance, the character that he plays mm -hmm. is such a, again, it's brave. I mean, it is not an easy guy no. to deal with at all. You know, you have extremely complicated uh, feelings about him. The feelings you have towards him are so complex. It, he forces you to question yourself in cheering for someone or rooting for someone or having interest in someone who in life you probably wouldn't You'd be like that. That guy's despicable. Next is summer of Sam. Yeah. Which again, it's spike is going now. I'm going to make a movie about this, about New York, about, about New York. Yeah. About it. Yeah. I love, which is New York at um, a time when all this is happening with the summer of Sam. Yeah. As we talked about doing spike Lee for some reason, there is one film I felt absolutely compelled to rewatch. Yeah. And that is bamboozled. Yeah. I can't even begin to tell. Let me read you. I took some notes. Please. I'm going to just read you what these are just the things I'm writing down. <laughs> There's a lot of F-bombs in my notes. I wrote, this movie is fucking amazing. Fucking brilliant in a way I don't understand. This is fucking amazing fucking filmmaking. This is a transcendent fucking movie. It is so far beyond any fucking expectations. That's what I write. I mean, like, it is extremely difficult. Yeah extremely brave mm -hmm. it is really uncomfortable it's really funny if you can deal with it mm -hmm. you know like if you can laugh at that situation it is like this is an artist going out and doing just like here it is you know what i mean i i can't it's not everybody's cup of tea 
I, I, you know, a lot of people maybe will watch it and not even get it. Yeah. It really, it doesn't just dangle its toes in areas that are offensive and difficult. It fucking jumps in fearlessly. But that's the thing. You got to have a director who's willing to sit in that uncomfortable space because it's something you like. Because also you got to remember as a writer in general, you're writing something out and you're like, I might love this, but this might not be well received. I will never get out of my head that scene kind of near the end where um, homie is like tap dancing and whatnot and then ends up getting shot. And and it was just it was such a dark and just kind of moment. I just remember what it did to me and how gross I felt afterwards and whatnot. It was really cool to see someone put that into film and it make you think about it. And you felt gross because of like, you had the shucking and driving and essentially the coon and all that kind of stuff. The fact that Spike make, made you really think about that is he's just allowed us to take a long, hard look at what is going on and whatnot, you know, and, and, and to really expose the things that we're not willing to talk about really in public. And I think it's because of Spike that we are finally doing that. Yes, there was some pushback on Bamboozled, but for the most part, people were like, yo, this is a great film. When you sit back and really understand what you're watching, this is a good movie, and it's got a lot of lessons in it, and a lot of people enjoyed it. And again, it's it's not highly revered as his other films. I, th- I truly think it's one of the great films. Again, it's fucked up. <laughs> it's oh, hard. It's very much so. Yeah. And, you know, way before Ellen Pompeo was saying stupid shit about Denzel Washington and almost assuming that because she's married to a black man, she somehow has more credibility in the black community. Here's a film from 2000 that really exposes that and explores that with uh, his Dunwoody's character, who is the boss here, mm-hmm. who ha- who thinks because he is um, married to a black woman and has mixed race kids that he can use the N word. And right. his, his, he's more black than other black men. Like this idea that white people can co-opt or colonize the black experience away from any black. I don't care how, how much you want to make fun of a black man who's educated and has the quote unquote white voice. Like sometimes people accuse Reggie Miller of they're still black men and their yep. experience. You cannot co-opt as a white man, no matter how much you try. No matter how much you think you can, you cannot co-opt that experience. You know, Eminem's a separate conversation, things like that. That's a separate conversation. He's still a white man in the world. And the black experience is so uniquely their own. And, you know, and I love, this is Spike Lee, real quick, Steve, I'm sorry. This is Spike Lee with the doors completely blown off, with no filters, and completely in your face to make you wake up to the racism and the... Um, um, uh, the systemic racism and the decades of racism that this country has done at the expense of black people and swept under the rug. Well, and it's like, so first of all, it is definitely channeling network and these satires about, about the media. I can feel the pressure that Hollywood put on Spike Lee to tell certain kinds of stories that Hollywood feels comfortable with. I can feel his father's hatred of African-American representation in film. And the thing is, the thing we said from the beginning, you don't, it's not like there's people that you can side with and go, yeah. Yeah. Like you have the, um, there are people that look at the show of blackface and are deeply offended by it. By the way, within that group of, 
African-Americans, there is a white guy doing exactly what you're talking about yeah. who is who who considers himself like a black man and they yeah. accept him as that. There's so much and there's this condemnation, this I, I can't even describe it of that there's a joyful embrace embracing by the audience in this movie of these racist tropes yeah it's like the part of the idea of the film is like that that's what on some level we want you know sure and, and it is such a it's a fucking baseball bat to the world of media mm -hmm. to our sensibilities and it is do, do you walk out of it going yes i agree 100 percent with the point that this film is making no i i think you go what the fuck was that? We need to have a conversation. This is a, yeah. you know, well, how do I feel? You know, this may be one we do as the commentary track. This could be a lot of fun for you and <sighs> the commentary Man, track. It's a lot. It, I, th th there's, th there's montages where they're putting on blackface mm -hmm. and the music, you know, it's jazz music and it's just so painful. Yeah. It, it, it really is remarkable. I also think this is a shot at 90s black sitcoms, at Martin, at these films, mm. at these shows that mm. people got became successful doing looks. And I'm I'm not indicting those shows. I enjoyed Martin. I enjoyed Fresh Prince. I enjoyed these other shows that came out in the late 90s, these black shows. And this is his way of saying, look, you've taken our culture and essentially become a modern day minstrel show with the way you're making fun of these tropes. I mean, I, I can't imagine he saw Jamie Foxx and that character he does in Martin and went like, oh, yeah, that's great. I love that that's around with the long nails and the big butt and the big lips. And yeah, great. Let's show that. I can't imagine he was happy with that. Right. And so this is Spike also being unafraid to take the bat to his own community. Yep which at times has gotten him into trouble within his own community as well, which I appreciate. Right. That's what rebels do. That's what truth tellers are supposed to do. And I appreciate that about Spike. Well, you think of the Damon Wayne's character in that movie and it's just yeah. like, what is Spike trying to say? Who, right. and, and, and what Damon, it's like what is the, it's like the Wayans family is clean, Steve with their own characterizations. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. Um, right at the same time, by the way, we get the original Kings of comedy, <laughs> hugely important and influential. That is still one of my favorite stand-up films ever. I mean, it introduced me to Cedric the Entertainer, which I didn't know yeah. about. It gave Bernie a platform I'd never seen before. Dale Hewley is fine, but Steve Harvey comes out of that. Right. I think that movie makes Steve Harvey's True. absolute next 20 years of his life. Yeah. Um, and it exposes a whole bunch of people because the, you know, the 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 Chitlin circuit, which is the right. the black entertainment circuit that barrier still existed. It still exists today. There are still black comedy clubs and, and they don't, you know, necessarily cross over. So that movie allowed that crossover to happen. 25th hour. I love 25th hour. It's a great movie. Yeah. There, there's a line from, what am I trying to, there's a line from clockers to 25th hour to inside man. Yeah. This is spike at times, as you said, he'll do what he wants to do at times, stepping out of what people expect from, of him and exploring doing these more standard mainstream approaches to filmmaking. And he knocks them out of the park every single time he does it. Clockers 25th Hour and Inside Man are all good films that show you that he's not just a quote-unquote black filmmaker or only talks about the black experience. He can venture out of his own community at any time, and he does an incredible job adapting these stories and bringing them to the screen and making you care about these characters. I was so excited to see 25th Hour because it is so much a, I really, it's just what you say. I think he went, I'm a filmmaker. Yeah. I'm not a black filmmaker. Yeah. 
I'm interested in this story and I'm going to bring my craft and my abilities to this story. And it is, again, the craftsmanship, top to bottom, everything in that film is just beautifully, beautifully made. And what a great balance. You go to a com- complete black film and the black experience like Bamboozled and you go, yeah, uh, you know what? I'll just go with a white lead now and I'll tell the white guy's story, Edward Norton's story yep. in this film. You know, and again, yep. we get Philip Seymour Hoffman, Barry Pepper, Rosario Dawson, so many young actors, hungry actors at this time get a chance to be a part of Spike's uh, film. Well, and, and as you mentioned, we go Inside Man is 2006. Yeah. And that is, again, an entirely different genre of film. Yes. Yes. A heist film. Yeah. And after 25th Hour, She Hate Me. Yeah. Another film I've never seen. <laughs> It's an interesting film. I get what he was trying to expose here because he was trying to kind of focus on the upwardly mobile black man and the relationships he has within that community and the deal going on with and his. I mean, you get Kerry Washington, and Anthony Mack. This is a young Anthony Mackie kind of leading this film with Kerry Washington and Ellen Barkin and Monica Bellucci. We get John Torturo coming back as well right. and being a part of this. So there's a lot of places that this goes, and it's very interesting. Um, how it exposes some of the issues within the film and the reactions to those issues within the film. But again, one that doesn't hundred percent work, but there's still some stuff to take out of it. Cause he's trying to talk about the changing um, expectations and uh, experiences in the black community as more black men are getting access to these upwardly mobile positions. And I think Spike is a big reason for that. Spike awakening the idea that you have to look at black people in a different way all through the 90s, early uh, late 80s into the 90s. Now these businesses were being aware of this, being being, kind of called out on it. So they were looking to hire black men. What's that experience like when you're a black man in an executive position? So it was an interesting exploration of all of that. Miracle at St. Anna, I have never seen. Yeah, it's not a good film. It was his attempt at a war film through the black Mm -hmm. experience, but it's really heavy handed and I don't know what happened here. Like, I just don't know what happened when he was making that movie. I know there are some people who defend it and like it, but for me, it just is way too, as a critic, as an analyst, it's too much. And I don't know. He, he makes the easier choices or the more maudlin choices or melodramatic choices than the more difficult, uh, rebellious choices or difficult choices. So I, I just, I, it's not a film that works for me. Another fantastic documentary is When the Levees Broke. Oh, yeah. When the Levees Broke changes everything for everybody. You know, we we hear this story of what happened in Katrina. We hear this story from people on the ground and then him taking the footage he has and showing you these things and even giving you more of those firsthand accounts is like, oh, my God, it's chilling. And that to me just seems like I, I, I have no idea. I don't know how it came about, but that seems to me like he was compelled to tell this story. Yeah. He just felt... I have to drop what I'm doing and go go tell this story. Yeah, yeah. And it's it. I I think that moment, you know, that Hurricane Katrina is such a seminal moment in the 21st century history. You know what I mean? And I think that exploration of it, both that and when he returns there uh, for the second documentary, are really really key in understanding this event. And yeah. then we get yeah. to Old Boy. Yeah, I don't know. I, I to you know. A great great filmmakers are going to make you question things. That's just yep. kind of how they are and make the decisions, like question the decisions rather. And I have to say, I don't understand why you would take on a remake of Old Boy. Don't I mean, yep. I don't know if Spike was like was running out of money, was neat. He took a studio film here 
And this is one of those rare ones where he doesn't, where he kind of doesn't have a black lead and roll and kind of um, tries to do something different here. And it really doesn't work. Not that Josh Brolin or, or um, Elizabeth Olsen aren't good in the film. They're good actors. They're going to deliver good performances. Their Spike Lee doesn't have some interesting work within the film as a director. It just is so an American approach to this uniquely Asian film, Korean film that it just pales in comparison. So I don't know why you do it. And I don't know why you let a studio let you do it. If you're this rebellious filmmaker, this kind of, you know, person on the cutting edge, why are you doing a remake, an American remake of a great Asian film? It just doesn't make sense. I, I honestly, I mean, you know, there are a lot of filmmakers who later in their career yeah. kind of drift. Yes. You know, it's not that he's not a, continues to be an extremely talented person who's great sense of craftsmanship, right, right. but it feels, you know, like he's kind of looking around. I think the documentaries he's making are still really good at this point. Absolutely. But I think some of these other films, and, and also I should say, I haven't seen a bunch of them. So uh, next is The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which I haven't seen. Yeah, I did not see that one. She Rock, which I haven't seen. Uh, my brother Jay Washington is in She Rock. So being, first of all, being in Chirac is honestly one of the highlights of my career because Spike is one of my favorite directors ever, like I said. And it took a minute to get past the I'm working with Spike Lee thing. Because it was surreal. It was so surreal for so long. But when you watch him on set, I, I tell everybody he's a general on set. He's making sure everything is where it needs to be and different things. And one of the crazy parts is a lot of the things we shot were outdoors. So there's a lot of sound and a lot of things outside you just can't control. And so he does this thing, though, I've always remembered. When the scene is being set up, he walks the whole set in a circle but you don't really pay attention to it. And it's like a spiral until he ends up in the middle of it and we're ready to shoot. And just listening to his direction, listening to his notes and watching other actors and especially bigger name actors, you know, receive that and then, you know, make adjustments to whatever notes he gives you. It's, it's, it's incredible, man. It's one of those things that inspires you if you're an actor to keep doing more, because again, this is one of the most, most prolific directors in history. And so to you want you want to make sure you make your best impression on him. You already made an impression through an audition, right? That's one thing. But now you're on the set. And for me, it was just like every day I reported to work on set, it was just like, man, I'm doing this. I'm working with Spike Lee. I'm working with this big name actor, that big name actor. You know, it just it, it let me know I'm where I belong in my career. In researching Spike for the last several weeks, you know, he's got like a, it tends to have a reputation of like this is this angry, intense guy. And the sense I get from listening to him and hearing people talk about him is that he's a really warm person on the set and creates an environment. Yes, he does. He makes, you know, he's, he's that general, like I said, to make sure things are going the way it should. But at the same time, he's very, he understands if I'm stressing you out, you can't perform at the level I need you to give me. So he'll give you, you know, of course, he's a director. You're on a time crunch. But at the same time, it's not this. You got to get this shit right. You, pardon the expression. My apologies for swearing. But it's. You swear all you want. Okay. It's fine. But it's it's him being there and letting you know, hey, this is what we need. All right. Can you try it a different way? All right. Let's do this. Now, he might you might have gotten the way he wants, but now he wants different variations. And it's so it makes you comfortable and competent in your own ability as an actor. And then we get to. 2018 and Black Klansman. I thought that was my favorite movie of the year. 
This is a return to form, isn't it? You yeah. just mentioned all these films. Like, from Inside Man to Black Klansman, it is a law of diminishing returns or mm-hmm. occasional, lack of a better term, spikes. Uh, but overall, it's a little bit of a letdown for a majority. Other than his documentaries, a little bit of a letdown. And the box office isn't there for a lot of these films either. So here comes Black Klansman, and this is a return to form for Spike. As you said, this is maybe the drifting years from Inside Man to Black yeah. Klansman. That's 12 years, by the way. And he comes back and wins the Oscar for this and, de- and and delivers an incredible film yet again, talking about the experience of race in this country and finds a new and interesting angle to do so. Even if we put aside race and and the sure. depth of that movie, it is a thrilling, stressful cop movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like just as a story of an undercover cop, yeah. it is thrilling. Mm-hmm. It's really funny mm-hmm. because the situation is so damn bizarre. And again, we get to have complicated feelings. Not that we have complicated feelings about the guys in the clan. (laughs) (laughs) We don't really have complicated feelings about that. But like the fact that your main character is dating someone who he is investigating is like really troubling. And what's so interesting about this film is you can see his, this main character's awakening from going to the Stokely Carmichael, you know, event and like having his mind changed. He goes undercover and he goes into the black student union gathering. And, you know, you have the young preacher, the young, the young, uh, he's like a preacher style giving his fiery message. And it's so brilliant because let me tell you, these are things that I've had to deal with where you're in one scenario and people don't know who you are or what your life is. And they're talking to you and expecting that you believe one thing but then as this uh, protagonist is listening to this preacher, you see him almost like buying into it, what he's gone in to stop. Mm-hmm. And there's no dialogue. He, it's just a look. And I thought to myself, the brilliance of Spike Lee didn't take away from the moment with writing. He allowed the actor to explore. And if I'm staying on the long lines of uh, Black Klansman, how great is it for a, a, a black director who we may sometimes in our, our mind limit to also capture the gross, disgusting nature of the KKK and to make you feel like he it's, it's unbelievable. So the dichotomy of those two extremes, you have um, black Panthers, KKK, and then you have the person in the middle. Then to, when I saw his ability, again, I, I've repeated this, but to allow you to feel for both, I thought those moments are profound, and I want to be able to do something like that on screen as an actor and as a director and as a writer. And I think Black Klansman broke out a little bit because I think having Jordan Peele as a producer coming after Get Out, it was just like, oh, you know, like he was suddenly, Spike was suddenly not alone on an island. He was with a group of people who were doing storytelling that was that was more like had been more accepted. (laughs) You know, you bring up that's a great thing to bring up. Jordan Peele was, in essence, a product of Spike Lee. And Spike Lee had always tried to have black people in positions on his production team and producers, cinematographers, composers, actors and writers Essentially, he finally reached that point where a black producer was producing his stuff and helping him. So in essence, what he wanted to create was more opportunities for black people at a time when that wasn't happening. And now seeing Black Klansman is maybe one of the first examples of it bearing fruit of the tree, finally bearing some fruit that he could eat or take advantage of. 
it's just a fascinating film with great, great performances, top to bottom. And again, loses the Oscar. Yeah, yeah. And they tried to paint him as the radical black filmmaker again because he walked out because he was upset about it without thinking, okay, can you understand the point of view of why he would walk out, why he feels it's such an insult as a black man that it feels like they have we haven't progressed at all in three decades. I think that he is revered in his own way, but I don't think he gets the same kind of respect that, say, uh, a Spielberg does or um, uh, James Cameron. I don't think Spike gets quite as much of that as he should. There was a story told about when he was going to the Oscars with uh, Wesley Snipes and he wanted to go upstairs and he didn't have his, his ticket didn't have the red, orange stripe on it. So they didn't let him in. They didn't let him or Wesley Snipes in. Spike Lee, they would not let him in. I never saw Green Book, so I don't, I, I well, can't speak on it. I feel like you need to watch it for, I, I, I will uh, at some point. Um, because it is driving Miss Daisy all over again. Yeah. Versus, and I don't care what anybody says. And some of my fellow critics were jumping up and down about how excited they were the Green Book won. It drove me insane. You're just exposing how much you want safe racism in your movies or safe exploration. <laughs> safe racism. Stuff. I'm looking for the safe racism. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, Black Klansman was a real stripping away of the layers. Yep. And I would argue... A, a new approach for Spike because there's more humor here than he's ever oh, yeah. had in any of his previous films about the terrible depiction or the terrible racism in this country, the systemic racism. Here's a film that does it with a tongue, a little bit of humor, a little bit of a tongue in his cheek, kind of like what uh, Tarantino has done at times when he's explored a little bit of racism in his movies that, that we've had in this country. So uh, I, you know, the fact that Green Book won is safe. And look, nothing against Mahershala Ali, nothing against Viggo Mortensen. Yeah. One of the most safe films about race that you're ever going to watch. My God. It, it, it's so funny. Again, I go back to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is the, mm. you know, because we just talked about it. And that is very much a movie, as we talked about mm. in our episode, directed towards white people. Yeah. And it's a really good movie that both you and I really like. Mm -hmm. But in terms, I'm going to go back to this word of courage. In terms of being brave, yeah. it's not that brave. No. But you look at Black Klansman, you look at some of these other incredible Spike Lee movies, and he is going at stuff yeah, in a really human way. I think Spike Lee has been mistreated. I, oh, uh, let me say this. Let me, let me rephrase. And, I, and I'm, I'm keeping this as part of my rephrasing because... He has definitely made a life and a living generational wealth. So in that sense, he's been recognized for the work that he's done. However, if we're putting what he's done on equal scale to other directors in the industry, I don't think he has gotten the recognition he deserves. I don't think Spike Lee has been recognized to the full extent for the body of work. Because he's proven time and time again that he can really serve it to you. Like a thousand percent, he can give you that message, but do it in an artistic way that you really start to think about about your life. Fast forward to when he got his honorary Oscar, which I still feel like great. He got an honorary Oscar, but it speaks to the fact that he hasn't been recognized for the actual work for a specific picture that he's done. For me, I, I feel like he should be the most honored of filmmakers. When will that time happen? Like, it's so long overdue. New York epicenters. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. I, I'm going to say something that might shock you. Please. 
I think that documentary mm-hmm. can be mentioned in the same sentence with Ken Burns' Civil War documentary. Wow, that is a strong, strong statement. It is so good mm-hmm. in a completely what's so crazy about first of all you know what i said about spike lee's love mm-hmm. man you could feel it from top to bottom his love for new york yeah and his love for every person he's interviewing you know what i mean like his he wants to hear their story mm-hmm. and you because you can hear his voice when he's doing the interviews and you could hear the joy and the laughter i felt like i got to know spike more watching that documentary than i ever got to know him yeah you know because when he's being interviewed and you know he's always making his point Mm -hmm. and frequently it's intense and controversial and he's saying difficult stuff here. You could just hear him kind of joking and laughing and, and, and talking about something he loves. And that movie has the most bizarre, almost stream of consciousness structure. Mm -hmm. Like it's just kind of moving all over the place. And then it brings this emotional wallop over and over again. It's really fucking good. Yeah, it's it's. I remember debuting, and I wasn't sure if I was like how I was going to approach this because I mean, you know, nine eleven. What is there more to say? And the fact that he connected it to COVID, and it was the last twenty years, and he got so many incredible interviews. I mean, oh, he yeah. made he made Bill De Blasio seem human. <laughs> he, he, I mean, he, he, his love of the Mets, like he ball busted some of the people who were Yankees fans because he's a Mets fan. Right. Knicks, the Knicks stuff came up. You got Spike Lee, not in a way like Michael Moore, who's annoyingly about himself in his documentaries. You got Spike's, as you said, his joy, his, but you also got Spike's seriousness, Spike's yep. care, Spike's love of his subjects. And you know, when you're seeing these people who are not famous, these people who are just regular people who lost people to COVID, who lost generations of family to COVID, fathers and grandfathers or mothers and grandmothers, and you're hearing their stories, you're you're, you're getting a face, they're putting a face on COVID so you understand what a colossal mistake, what a colossal fuck up Trump made in dealing with this, what a colossal mess up a local politicians made in dealing with this, what a colossal mis- uh, what a colossal bunch of errors that were made that caused so many people to die. And you get to see the people on the front lines and experience yep. they, what they experienced. And then you have some fantastic stuff like Jeffrey Wright, who still lives in Brooklyn, who right. was out there breaking up a protest, who was out there calling out people and seeing people who were trying to cause unrest on purpose, agents who were in there trying to cause our unrest. You know, just like the 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 people, the crazy ones on the right with the conspiracy stuff. Not everybody on the right. So I'm saying the, the crazy ones on the right who are claiming the FBI was involved with January 6th. And they were, you know, that's all projection because they know they've sent people to get involved in these protests to to kind of go against BLM or to kind of cause problems with people who are protesting of race. They've done that. So they naturally think, of course, these people would have been involved in January 6th doing the same thing. So you're seeing that exposed here in this documentary and it'll make you cry. It'll make you laugh. It'll make you feel, um, and it, it'll educate you. And then when he gets to nine 11, Jesus Christ, Steve, I wasn't ready to experience it again, the way he put it together. It's, it's, it's just, that is the finest documentary I've seen on nine 11. Just that. I agree. And I I imagine, and I I don't know how he talked to HBO about this thing, (laughs) but, and I don't know how he approached it. I don't know what he was thinking when he started my feeling again. I think he was just compelled to get his camera out and start talking to people. Mm -hmm. That's what I feel like from watching it. But can you imagine like going like, okay, I want to do this documentary and it's going to be about 9-11 and we'll talk about the Iraq war and Afghanistan and Black Lives Matter and the dealing with immigrants and dealing with COVID and de- and you just go like, well, how the fuck could you do all this? 
and, and, and the way he moves yeah. through different topics yeah. and makes connections to the, you know, all these things that are going on. It's like, it's really remarkable. And I'm sure the reference to old New York, like using yeah, yeah. New York, New York, you know, from the musical right. using on the waterfront and the music from on the waterfront. And I love, I think the connection, I think the final image of the film is that door closing and on the waterfront. Yeah. And, and the connection between, you know, Marlon Brando's character who gets the shit beat out of him and is going to get up and go back to work mm-hmm. to New York. Yeah. Right. I'm moved just thinking about it. Yeah. I really am. I agree, brother. I agree. I'm glad you watched it, you know, because I felt like I was the only person of our crew of people who watched that documentary we're talking about it because I was going insane that people hadn't watched it and hadn't, you know, been talked about more because it's such an incredible documentary. It's uh, it's six hours. You, 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 you know, you're dialing into a very long oh i think it's seven hours seven and a half hours you're yeah. into a very long documentary but it's a documentary that will educate you as the great ones do and entertain you as well well and i mean i do get it it's like again my description it's like okay so it's gonna be about 9 11 and covid and blah, you know and it's seven and a half hours long that's not a lot of people don't go yay i'm gonna jump in <laughs> it is but as you say it is really entertaining yeah in addition to being profound and moving yeah and I do want to throw one more documentary in here that we haven't quite talked about yet. There's a fantastic doc he did about Michael Jackson's journey. It's oh, called, I haven't seen that one. It's great. It was on, I watched it on Showtime uh, last year uh, or two years ago, I think. Michael Jackson's journey from Motown to off the wall. It is, again, a great documentary about showing the black experience of this artist who's going solo, breaking out from the Jackson 5 and what he experiences. Yes, even Michael Jackson experiences from the white record executives, what he's trying to do. And he is going on the cutting edge. People forget they want to go and they want to turn Michael Jackson into what they turn Michael Jackson now. But people forget how groundbreaking he was with Off the Wall. And if that wasn't enough, then he came out with Thriller, which destroyed the world. Yeah. So it's a great exploration of, the, of all he's going through as he breaks out, deals with the jealousy and the ramifications of it from his family and stuff, and finds his unique artistic vision to create off the wall. So if you haven't seen that documentary, I can't recommend it enough for you all to watch that too. I'll go to a recent film. Go to The Five Bloods. This one is what he I think he was trying to do with Miracle and St. Mm. Anna, and he got it really right here. And it is, it's an experience. It's going to test you. It's 156 minutes. It is not a short film by any stretch of the imagination. We get to get back with Delroy Lindo, now older, and he's a MAGA supporter. Look at the layers in that. This is a former Vietnam vet, right? He's back with his brothers. You know, they're coming to get one of their fallen brothers out there, bring him home. But also you find out there's something else on top of it they're going to get. But then you, he's a black man who's wearing a MAGA hat. One of the characters supports Trump. He's not denying those things and he's exploring those, th- th- that, that issue. So this idea that he's a Trump guy within the black community of his brothers from Vietnam as they're going back to Vietnam, a pilgrimage back to Vietnam to, to kind of, I think to, to not to bury, but to honor uh, Chadwick Boseman, who was their leader in Vietnam, who died. He's still traumatized by the horrors in which he went through in Vietnam, seeing the kids and then having to deal with the relationship with his son and trying to get all these different things. The layers of Delroy Lindo's character. And then when he snaps out. Honestly, I cannot shake uh, Delroy Lindo's 
like full on breakdown in the PTSD in the five bloods. I just saw it for like the third time. You watch Delroy Lindo going through this whole phase on his own. So before he's unfortunately killed by the Viet Cong is still out there. It's all these different things in one person. And that's just one character. The woman who's DJing and speaks about the time and, and what was happening. I was so taken with that. I thought it was shot beautifully. I thought her performance was amazing. And I thought what she was saying was so like, holy shit. I think honesty is a real important word for Spike Lee. And I remember in, in a kind of um, fearless honesty, like I don't care what people are going to think. I'm going to tell you a truth. And it's not universal truth. It feels like personal truth. That, I mean, that's been the gift of Spike, isn't it? Is his ability to teach us um, about our country's history with race. And, you know, circling back to what um, Kay was saying here, DJ, DJ Hanoi Hannah is her name in Defy Bloods. And what she's saying, what Kay is pointing out so eloquently here is that she's saying like, hey, black man, you you are 32% of the army when you're only 11% of the population. Don't you see that the white man is using you? Now, in 1986, if you're doing Platoon, you don't put that in there. If you're 1979, right. when you're doing Apocalypse Now, you don't put that in there. But we've progressed so much as a society in the mainstream aspect to understand and kind of accept more, thanks to Spike Lee and other people, that there is a terrible history of racism in this country towards black people. And so what she's saying in the past would have been dismissed, but Spike is so... Um, willing, as Steve said here, to push the hard truths out and make you see these things, that he uses a character that has been typically used as a negative character in most Vietnamese films and uses them to tell these truths to lure black people to not fight for America and not be a part of this and not be able So it's just an interesting thing to go levels deep here. So it's always, it's fascinating that that's what stood out to you more powerfully from, or stood out to you as one of the powerful moments in Defy Bloods, man. The way he just kind of depicts that kind of machismo, the way that he depicts what mental health issues look like, uh, what PTSD looks like, all that kind of stuff. And, and no matter who you have in your corner, how it could still feel like things are getting away from you, I just thought was absolutely phenomenal uh, and some of the best work that Spike has ever put on screen. Uh, and obviously, shouts out to Delroy Lindo for a phenomenal performance that deserved a lot more uh, flowers and recognition. Uh, and I think Spike Lee deserved a lot more credit for this film than he got in the end because uh, it was only nominated for Best Original Score. That's it. Is there anything about uh, Mr. Lee that we have missed that you would like to say? One thing y'all don't know yet is that man likes to have fun. Like when he parties, he parties. I remember the rap party for Chirac just having a blast, laughing, joking with everybody smiling and just exuding that energy to everybody it's not the i'm spike lee you need to be excited to see a celebrity it's just like yo let's talk let's have let's laugh let's joke with all the like hits that i'm sure he's received over his career and all the difficulty and the uphill battles that he's had the fact that he is like smiling and in it and just as passionate all these years later as he was when he first started that's pretty incredible to write a screenplay that is good is an achievement in and of itself. To get the movie produced is an achievement of itself. But then to direct the movie and, and also to be in it, he's, um, 
He's incredible. And I think the reason I get so excited about it is because as a filmmaker is I know he is going to surprise. And I know that there, there is going to be something in his work that is going to make me stop and think and rewind. I'm really appreciative of this opportunity to talk about him because it has made me even more aware of what is just, I think it's taken for granted. We just, oh, it's Spike Lee, we assume it. There is always something where you stop and go, holy shit. And I think the holy shit moments are different for everybody. His crossover appeal has been so wide reaching that I I, I cannot see how there'll be another, but hopefully, you know, hopefully there will be one. Hopefully I can be a part of that. So I don't know exactly how to sum up my feelings on Spike Lee. I think we have a many, many weeks <laughs> before I, maybe we <laughs> yeah, had to do true. that completely, but this is what I'll say so far up to this point. Our deep dives on directors have been Orson Welles, mm. Alfred Hitchcock, Akira Kurosawa and Francis Ford Coppola. I 100% believe that Spike Lee is perfectly comfortable in that class of directors. He is without question, not only one of the great directors, but one of the most unique directors, one of the most fearless directors and one of the most powerful directors of my lifetime bar none. Yeah. You know, I only want to add to Steve's words to say, um, as you know, as a person of color from Latino, Immigrants, to me, he spoke so powerfully about the experience as a person of color in this country as having so many uh, black friends growing up and not being able to really understand what that experience is like. The His films showed me that. His films educated me, entertained me, made me more socially conscious, made me more socially aware. Um, and they challenged me, as the great filmmakers do. They challenge you. Do they always knock it out of the park? No, but that's one of the reasons why you enjoy them, because you love their big swings, you love their chances, because they're still trying to push the boundaries, even if they don't 100% succeed. Spike Lee has succeeded in a lot of ways with a lot of films, and he has created so many seminal films, so many films that have changed our perception of the world and educated us on the history of racism in our country. He's an important filmmaker in every possible meaning of that term. And we're like Steve, I 100% agree. He belongs in the conversation with all the greats from John Ford to now all the great filmmakers you can possibly bring up or talk about. Spike Lee belongs in the firmament uh, of those uh, uh, filmmakers for sure. And I'm, and I thank God he, one of the most influential filmmakers uh, for me personally yeah. that I've ever experienced. And I always cheer him on and hope to see great work from him until he passes from the earth. He should have been and should be recognized at a higher level of esteem, not only for his work, but for all the doors that he's opened for people as actors behind the camera, cinematographers, directors, I just got to give a big shout out to Spike Lee uh, and everything he has done for us, you know, black folk in the entertainment industry. So thanks again, Spike. So I'm not going to say that that's what we think of Spike Lee because we have a lot more time to discuss our feelings of Spike Lee, but we would love to hear about your feelings about Spike Lee. What are your favorite Spike Lee films? What are your favorite moments in Spike Lee films? Uh, you could visit us on our Facebook page, do a search for The Cinephiles, follow us on Twitter at center underscore files, Instagram, The Cinephiles podcast. You could subscribe to the show at all the places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts, leave your ratings on Spotify, your comments 
comments on YouTube. If you want to buy, you know what I'll do? We've done this before. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put up on the website a whole bunch of Spike Lee movies that you can all buy through cinephiles.net. Cool. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And you can find me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram and enterprise incidents. If you want to get into some Star Trek, John, how will people find you? You can always find me at the Roka says on Twitter and on Instagram. And I'm always open to have conversations about Spike Lee on Twitter or any place else. So please follow me there and the outlaw nation on Twitch where I'll do watch alongs. I've got movie watch alongs coming. I don't know if there are any Spike Lee ones on Amazon prime, but if they are, we can watch them together there on Twitch. And of course, all my other stuff, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says the top 10 and the geek buddies podcasts that are out there for you to enjoy um, and savor. There we go. And I especially want to thank all of our special guests for participating in this conversation. At this moment, I haven't heard all of them yet, and I haven't edited them in, but I know all of you will be great. And I think that is it for this week. We will see you next time when we begin our exploration of one of the great films of all time, Do the Right Thing. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.